It's a Radical Life, and we have with us today Dave Sharon. He is the Executive Director of Street Life Ministries. We wanted to have Dave come on to share his testimony and to tell us about Street Life Ministries. And we are in Walker, Minnesota right now. Amen. We're in Love a beautiful here. cabin. It's gorgeous out. It's like 70 degrees, and we're just loving it, taking them some time here to share with our listeners Dave's story. Why don't you start and tell us a little bit about your story, Dave? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> I never thought I would ever share my testimony testimony in Walker, Minnesota. How about that? It's yeah. pretty awesome. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I was given up for adoption mm-hmm. um, at birth and um, from very early on in my childhood, I felt different. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't feel like I fit in. And so my, you knew you were adopted the whole time? My mom was very open okay. about my adoption from the very beginning right. of, of my childhood. I can I, I don't think there was ever a time in my childhood where my mom wasn't open about that. Okay. I didn't know what she was talking about. But right. I knew that she wasn't my birth mother and my dad was not my birth father. Okay. And I think what happened in the translation of that was instead of making me feel special and making me understand, I think what happened was is it made me feel more different. Hmm. And so I started to see right away that I didn't have her eyes. I didn't have his ears. I didn't look like them. Right. My mom couldn't have children and my dad wanted to honor my mom by having children. And so they looked to do adoption. And so they found me or they got a phone call. I don't know how that all worked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The stork dropped me off. <laughs> and so my dad was kind of one of those hard Irishmen. He grew up in a really rough home himself. His brother mm. died of SIDS. Oh. And so my grandmother and grandfather kind of blamed him. And he kind of took the brunt of it on. And, hmm. and so he, he had a hard life. Okay. So he was one of those kind of guys that he believed in teaching me manhood through physical, you know, smack me, All right. you know, yell at me, yeah. um, you know, and my son's going to be a man. So I'm going to make him tough by being tough on him. Mm-hmm. And what it did was, is having no brothers and sisters, it kind of isolated me. And I kind of, I lost my identity. I didn't really know who I was or where I was from. Hmm. My manhood, everything was just kind of like tossed to the wind. And I didn't really have anywhere to go. And my family did not believe in Jesus. Hmm. Unless there's at least a, f- a couple four-letter words before, after, or, oh, or both. Right. And, um, and that was all I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was a um, partier. He l- drank a lot, smoked a lot of marijuana. And my house was the house where everybody came. To, to party and I just saw my dad was physically and verbally violent to my mom. Hmm. He was one of those kind of drunks that when he would start drinking, he loved everybody and then the f- switch would turn on and then he hated everybody and then before you know it, he was kicking everybody else out of the house. Yeah. And so I just, I grew up very afraid and hmm. timid. I didn't have anybody to run to. I had no brothers and sisters. And so what ended up happening was is um, from a very early age, I just kind of isolated. Isolation became my friend. I stayed in my room by myself, played hmm. with trucks and Legos and, you know, I isolated a lot. Yeah. They didn't have video games back then. Right. No, that was <laughs> even before Atari came out. <laughs> right. right. And then that kind of pursued all the way till I was about in the fifth grade. And then I remember um, in the fifth grade, I discovered my dad's liquor cabinet hmm. and I didn't know anything about liquor. And so I started drinking out of all of his bottles between tequila and rums and vodkas and not knowing what I was putting in my body. And I just remember I instantly felt 
alive. I liked the burn that was going down my throat. I liked the, the warmth that gave my body and it, and all mm. of a sudden the courage that came, like I was open, I was alive and I was just like, I can talk. And so I was attracted to that okay. right away. I started to become very social. And then I very early on in the sixth grade, I realized that my parents didn't smoke cigarettes. They smoked marijuana. Mm. So they would leave like half joints in their ashtray. So I started stealing the joints and smoking it in my bedroom and getting stoned. And, you know, and then of course I wanted to go share that with my friends. Mm -hmm. So I got my friends to start smoking with me. So, so you were the instigator. I was the pusher. Oh I was my. the guy. Yes. Okay. Right. So, and then I was that guy that would go to parties and I would want to drink out of the keg and show everybody how much of a man I am and sit there and drink and drink and drink and, hmm. and become very stupid and silly and, and all that stuff. And then beginning of high school is when cocaine was very popular. Hmm. My dad had cocaine in the house so I could get it for free. And then right when I was about a sophomore in high school, my dad got in trouble and he ended up going to jail for a little while. And while he was in jail and he got out, my mom gave him an ultimatum. Either you get clean and sober or I'm taking everything you own and your kid and I'm leaving you. And so he got sober. That was probably the first time I ever realized that I gained a resentment towards my dad because now my drugs were gone. Yeah. All the free drugs just left because he got sober. Right. And so now I had to find out how do I get it? What do I do? And so I started finding drug dealers and bartering with them and robbing and stealing little trinkets out of my parents' jewelry mm. cabinet to get drugs. And, and that just kind of pursued all the way through high school. And then I wasn't doing good in school. Um, I, you know, surprise. Yeah, I know. I know you find that hard to believe. <laughs> I enjoyed hanging out in the parking lot more than I did in the classrooms. So, right. You know, I, when I was in the classrooms, I'm dropping LSD. It's like one thing leads to another. Oh yeah. I would say that everything leads into a gateway. Mm -hmm. uh, marijuana to alcohol was just kind of a gateway for me to go into everything else. Do you think that's true for everyone that if I just do marijuana, I'm okay? Does it always lead to something else? Cause I had always heard that. Yeah, I would say that there is no real limit mm -hmm. for people, mm -hmm. right? I think it always ends up leading into something. Just there's some people that see it and say, okay, I need to stop. Those are people who are not addicts. Those are people that see that danger okay. and they can kind of you know bring it back and yeah. go, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. But I would say the majority of people can't. You get into it and it's just it just keeps going and going. If something else is presented, they try it. Right. And most addicts are about escape, mm -hmm. right? The alcohol and drugs aren't really the problem. They're just the masking of the problem. Right. So I didn't like who I was. I had no identity, especially didn't know who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. I was insecure. I was timid and I got beat up in school and people took my lunch money and stuff like that. And so drugs and alcohol just masked all that so I could hide behind the drugs and alcohol. That's interesting when we're all wearing masks right yes. now. <laughs> that true. Some of us wear different masks, not even realizing what we're doing, right? Yeah, I was uh, <laughs> teasing with my wife, Sean, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. I said, you know, I've got 15 years sober and I've worked, you know, my steps multiple times with my sponsor to remove all the masks right. just to go into the coronavirus to wherever I go, I have to wear a mask. And I find something really interesting with that because I feel like, not to get political over it, yeah. but with the mask thing, it's interesting because you know, when somebody's wearing a mask, you don't see their emotion. Mm -mm. So when I go into a place for me, because of my relationship with Jesus and what Christ has given me and the forgiveness that he's put in my life, 
I love to go into a place with a smile. Right. One of the things that I enjoy about your husband Mm -hmm. is that wherever he goes, no matter who he comes in contact with, he's always very pleasant and high energy. And, And I try to be like that as well. And with the masks on, you don't see that. It's way harder. I mean, you can show it in your eyes, but it's it's not the same. You got to do a lot of more expression for mm-hmm. people to realize that you're happy. Mm-hmm. I find myself sometimes just pulling the mask off and just yeah. saying, hey, thank you. Especially now, I'm kind of almost at a point where I don't really care. <laughs> well, you know, the going back to the alcohol, if you think about that being a mask, it really is hiding your true emotions then. Oh, absolutely. What it does is the alcohol and the cocaine and the methamphetamines, because meth was actually the drug of choice that actually brought me to my knees. What it does is it's constantly trying to numb myself from the pain. Well, the problem is that you don't know when you're in the addiction is that you're creating more pain. When By suppressing was, it? Well, no, because I'm doing more damage. Oh, you're doing I'm, more I'm okay. robbing from people. I'm lying oh, to people. Yes. I'm, I'm making my mom cry. My mom had to come visit me in jail. All the times that she begged me to stop doing the things I was doing, not even knowing who my creator was, those were a lot of scars and damage that I was putting on myself and not knowing it. So the more damage you're doing to yourself, the more masking and hiding and numbing that you Mm -hmm. want to do Mm -hmm. because you don't want to face reality. So the drugs have to get stronger and they have to get more. Mm -hmm. It never ends. I truly believe now, you know, I just celebrated 15 years of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. And I truly know now that without having God in my life, that I accepted in Salvation Army without having him in my life, I would never be able to face reality head on like I do today. Right. Today, it's really interesting. It's a a different way of living. Like in my marriage, which marriage brings on its own issues, Mm -hmm. right? We're raising Isaiah, who's 13, which brings on a whole other set of issues. And I don't run away from them today. I hit them head on. But I go to them with God. Yes. I ask God, I go, God, I need help. And what does God do? He provides people, you know, Mm -hmm. other men in my life who have already walked through those things, Mm -hmm. who God brings into my life to help speak into my life. Where before I would have just picked up a needle or I would have picked up a bottle and said, I can't deal with it. It's too painful. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to hide from it. But then when you sober, it's still there. Yeah. So what do you do? You just keep using and using and using. And today, through my relationship with Jesus, it's great. Mm-hmm. I get to experience things today that I would have never been able to handle before. You told me from a previous conversation that the judge had mercy on you. You were at a point where you were either going to go to jail or what did the judge finally give you? Yeah, so I was looking at doing a five-year sentence in mm-hmm. prison. And he gave me an opportunity to either go to prison for five years or take a suspended sentence and go to Salvation Army. And I really literally actually asked to think about it. <laughs> Why not? Because I, my, de- my decision-making was so good to that point. Oh, right? yeah, So right. let, me, let me think about this. Is prison better? Or, you know. And so I had some other people that were in the courtroom were there that same day. They were telling me what prison was going to be like. Yeah. So I immediately said, I'll take the Salvation Army. And up to that point, I had no relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, the only time I ever heard anybody talk about Jesus, it made my skin crawl. I was told Jesus was the, everything the opposite of who he really is. You didn't know what he could do for you. Oh, I had no idea. You know, I mean, I I love my dad. Yes. But I had, you know, I think the majority of people that listen to this podcast would agree that even me as a dad, we're not perfect. Mm -hmm. My dad was definitely not perfect. His issues that he had as a kid came into his fatherhood. Right. And they were very aggressive. And, you know, there was a lot of damage there Mm -hmm. that he created as a dad. And so when I heard God 
as father, right. I thought to myself, no, Mm-mm. I don't think I need that again, right? God is like my dad, then exactly. forget it. And I thought God was the kind of God that just is going to wag his finger in my face and tell mm. me how stupid I am and right. I'll never make it. Well, then once I got to Salvation Army and I was explained to me who God really was, that he's a loving, caring, forgiving mm-hmm. God, and then his whole walk and the punishment that he took for our sins and onto the cross... To me, that was like, wait a minute. That's something that I've, I've never been told before. You don't even know what that looks like. Well, even today, I mean, we were just right. talking about it a couple hours ago yeah. with your husband. It's like, you still to this day don't realize how much punishment Jesus Christ took for us. Exactly. You know, because we're all sinners. We all sin. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, that God took on that punishment. And you think, man, that's incredible. Right. So I took Salvation Army and I went into the program and I got into a situation where I was going to get kicked out and I still hadn't received Jesus at that time. And so I went to the chaplain and I asked the chaplain to get me out of my predicament. Right. And he told me, he says, I can't do that. Mm. And he says, but I do know somebody who can. And I'm like, okay. And I'm looking around. Right. Like, who, who is this Who's person? Who's this other guy I need to talk <laughs> exactly, to? Exactly. Right. right? <laughs> and he says, no, 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 you don't need to leave my office because it's, it's Jesus. And I'm like, oh, please. I go, no. <laughs> I go, look, I go, I really don't need your hocus pocus. I don't mm. need your Holy ghost. I don't. And I was like mocking him. Yeah. And he says, well, what do you really have to lose? And I'm like, okay. And I thought to myself really quick, you know, I'm kind of a hustler. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well maybe what he's really saying is that if I just do what he's asking that he'll pick up the phone mm-hmm. and he'll get me out of this jam. So I said, okay, just do whatever you want to do. And what is it? And he goes, I have nothing because I just want to pray over you. And if you feel led, you can pray along or confess or whatever sure you know whatever I was really desensitized to the whole thing I just wanted to get out of the jam that I was in because if right. I got kicked out of Salvation Army the judge told me he was going to send me to prison for five years there you so go. I really just wanted to get out of trouble sure and so he started praying over me and next thing I know my whole body just became really hot I started mm. sweating snots running out of my nose right. I'm, I'm just like I'm a mess and I literally felt like it's about three or four feet off the ground and I'm shaking and I next thing I know I'm confessing all the stuff that had happened to me physically being right. misappropriately touched by other people and sure. the things that I've done, the girls that I had slept with. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm confessing all this stuff and I don't even know what the heck's going on. And, and he asked me if I wanted to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord Savior. And all I remember is just screaming, yes, yes, wow. in his office. And I'm like, and I'm saying this and at the same time, like, what is going on with me? So he did the Lord, this, the sinner's prayer, the Lord's prayer over me. And I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And, he, and it stops. And I'm like, what did you just do? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I've never felt, I, I was like warm. I felt free. I felt like something I'd never felt before. I felt like, um, you know, when you're really, really hot and you jump into a lake sure. and that, that refreshing feeling you yeah. feel, that's how I felt. Wow. But I'm, but I'm not wet. Right. So you think that you were, you released something left you or well, what, what he told me was is that he said that when I asked for forgiveness and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior yeah that the devil and the, and the Holy Spirit can't reside in the same spot at the same time mm. I was purged yeah. and completely forgiven like it says in second Corinthians I accepted Christ and now I'm a new creation in his image yes. and that the devil has to flee in the name of Christ and that all my sins were forgiven right there on the spot Sorry, I don't mean to get emotional. No, but. that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but when that happened, now I'm free and I have the Holy Spirit in mm-hmm. me. And I'm like looking at him. I still don't really grasp what he's right. saying, but yeah. I know that what I'm feeling is something I've never felt before in my entire life. Mm. And so 
I'm like, okay. And next thing I know, we were leaving his office and the guy who was going to kick me out turned around and apologized to me for the way he was talking to me earlier. Yeah. And then he said to me that he, they're not kicking me out of Salvation Army, that they're going to find a way to work through my situation. Right. So they suspended me from the program and they brought me to their shelter program where I would spend the next 30 days kind of doing a, like a repentance than to come back to the oh. program. And in that 30 days, I had to go see my attorney and my attorney, I walked in his office and he tells me, Hey, you're never going to believe what I've, I'm going to tell you today. And I looked down on my sis, boy, I says, you know what? If, if I could tell you what happened to me in the last four days, mm-hmm. I don't, there's nothing you're going to tell me that's going to blow me away. Right. He says that all my charges are dropped. Everything that I was in court that was weighing over my head for my five years sentence in right? prison had been just dropped. Wow. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And he <sighs> says, no. <sighs> and I walked out of there and I'm like, it's Jesus. It's like, there's really a God out there. Really and he's God. really good to me. Yeah. And it was like, I was, it's really interesting because I was just having this conversation with your husband mm-hmm. earlier today about this. Some people, I feel like God can speak to them with a really soft subtle voice and people hear God Mm -hmm. for me, I'm kind of hard headed, Mm. uh, you know, and even today I'm kind of, I'm still kind of hard headed. Right. God speaks to me with a very loud kind of like a two by four, (laughs) you know, he really (laughs) has got to nail it into my head. Right. Right. And I was so anti God for so long. The way God rushed into my life is he showed miracles. Yeah. Really quick and showed up in my life really fast. You must have needed that. I had to. Yeah. I had to. There's still a part of me today that I need to have that Mm -hmm. for God to show me and reveal to me. Right. But that's just how my relationship is with us. We all have a personal, intimate relationship with God Mm -hmm. and Jesus in a certain way, and that's just how he speaks to me. And then I end up going back to Salvation Army. They helped me get into a sober living environment. When I went into... Salvation Army, I literally had about a sixth, seventh grade reading level and never was able to read the Bible. And here I am, I'm memorizing scripture. I'm, I can't put the Bible down. I'm just like, everything in the Bible is like me. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, how would, how did I know that Jesus is going to write a book about my sinful life all in 66 <laughs> books, right? And then I start going to church and the church I was going to, I met a gentleman there who became my first sponsor right around 2008. I got sober in July 23rd of 2005. Okay. So right around 2007, 2008, I ended up meeting, I, I lost my job. It's when the dot-com. Oh, that, was, that was, time in, yes, yes. It's when all the economy. And just, did you say you were in your 30s at that I, time? I got sober when I was 35. Okay. So I had a job. I was working pretty good. And then all of a sudden the economy fell apart. Right. And like 50,000 employees at the company I was working at worldwide got laid off on one day. And I was devastated. Mm-hmm. So I went to my sponsor and I told him, I go, I think God doesn't love me. I think he forgot about me. And, this and, that. and my sponsor's like, no, I think what it is is I think he's trying to get your attention. You haven't really been paying attention lately. And he's really trying to get a hold of your attention. And he says, there's a ministry right down the street from this AA meeting called Street Church, where they feed the homeless. And he says, I think you need to go there and serve the homeless a couple times, get God, get grateful, and realize that your life is not over and that there's more to life than just your paycheck. I was, <laughs> I was a little angry at my sponsor for saying that to me because I really wanted him to put my ar- his arms around me and go, oh, it'll be okay. Oh, you right. Know, but, but that's not No cuddles. <laughs> no, 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 no cuddles. So I went down to Street Church 
the very first night I was there, I ran into three guys that I used to rob and steal with and get loaded with. No kidding. And they were still getting high. And they saw me and I saw them. And the first thing I thought was to duck my head so they would not recognize me. Right. Right. But it was too late. And they're like asking me tons of questions. Right. Like, did you even know they were on the street? I knew they were still on the street. Oh, you did? I just didn't know they were there. Okay. You know, I mean, the whole year, the whole, all the years I was homeless, I never even knew street church existed. Okay. And here I am serving and these guys show up. Wow. And they're asking me tons of questions. So in the next couple months, I helped them get into Salvation Army. All three of them got sober. Two of them are doing great. One lives in Salinas, California. The other one lives up in Manteca, California. Doing really good. Got jobs and doing good. Um, One of them, unfortunately, relapsed and died in an overdose. That is kind of for par with addiction. I think it's usually one out of ten that makes it more than five years. It's a pretty low. I mean, recovery is hard. I hate. I don't want to discourage anybody that listens to this podcast because it's well worth recovery. Yes. It's just you got to put in the work. You really do. You can't just say, okay, I'm sober and that's it. You have to have a relationship. Well, I'm with thinking Jesus. even as you're trying to help people, you got to get it in your mind. Not everybody's going to make it. Yeah. You it, want them all to, but. And that was the hardest part of, so really quick to roll back a second. So from that night forward, I fell in love with the ministry. Yes. And for the first time in my entire life, next to accepting Jesus, mm-hmm. I felt like this is it. This, this is, is where it. I need to be. So I've been a truck driver, a delivery guy ever since I got out of high school. Right. I'm 37 at that time. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden I'm like, is this really it? And I kept praying to God. And next thing I know, I had a little studio apartment in East Palo Alto and I'm talking to the guys that lead the ministry and they're like, Hey, we're single. You shouldn't be in an apartment by yourself in East Palo Alto. You should come live with us. Let's get a place together. We're we're going to be bachelors till the rapture. So I'll tell our audience too, obviously, if they don't know, Palo Alto's in California. You spent most of your time yes. out here in California, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, yes. I, I should have said that myself. No, I'm but. so born and raised in Redwood City. Okay. lived in California all my life. Right. I, I've moved away a couple times, different, like Virginia and a couple and different places. And this area is between San Francisco and San Jose out in the Bay Area. Yeah, we're right smack dab in the middle on the peninsula. Okay, so right. go ahead. So yeah. Redwood City is the, the best weather. In the whole world. The whole I know. World. They've got a sign on their uh, <laughs> City, uh, <laughs> climates by government, right? Test, but right? Uh, not the lowest prices of houses. No. So, you know, people have been hearing about the homeless in San Francisco, and one of the reasons why is it's so expensive there, too. Yes, yeah, it's so expensive, and just the, the way again, it's just a really I battle with it all the time. But the way that they've changed the laws mm. incarceration for drugs, yeah, really has made it just there's no punishment for doing drugs. I mean, what I got busted for that I was looking at five years Yeah. today Nothing. is not even a ticket, yeah. you know? And so I have some issues with that mm-hmm. because as an addict or recovering addict, when you tell somebody that's fully in their addiction that, Hey, if you got a big bag of meth on you or cocaine, it's really, there's no punishment for it. That doesn't help an addict. And when you go to jail, there's actually a consequence to it. It does put a little bit of a hindrance in there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a cure all. But there's definitely something to that that makes you feel like, okay, now I've got to go through drug court probation. Yeah. I've got to take random drug testing. We'll at least have to make some kind of decision. Exactly. Yeah. And for me as a pastor and somebody who leads this ministry, mm-hmm. when I know one of my guys and my wife is also the female outreach leader, when we know that a man and a woman has been arrested for a drug charge because we get phone calls from the, the local police department, for us, that's the opportunity to jump on it get ourselves on the book, go visit 
And that's when we start doing our outreach. Well, when you don't have them locked up and the person's just constantly out there on the streets getting loaded, most of our folks are ODing and dying mm. because there's no, there's no off switch. And now we've got this fentanyl stuff that's on the streets, yeah. which I don't know if you know much about fentanyl. I don't. It's like heroin on steroids. Mm. And it's, it doesn't take much of it to overdose. And the problem is, is people are putting it in everything. You don't even know it's in marijuana and they, people are buying marijuana and they're smoking it and they're dying. Mm. It's just, it's horrible. And for those who don't die, become deathly addicted to it. Yeah. And it just makes it harder and harder for people like my wife and I to help people get off the street. And so it's creating such a problem in mm. California. The streets are just riddled with homelessness right now. It's sad. It's really, really sad. And we're trying to do whatever we can through the ministry. I've been leading the ministry now for 13 years. So uh, tell us then uh, for street life, the things you do for the homeless and what the mission is. Yeah. So we're, we're a church that meets on the street. Mm-hmm. I've been down the peninsula. We have three locations, four nights a week before coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. We had a bingo night and a movie night. But that's all kind of ended right now mm. until we can get through all of this six foot distance and masking thing. Yeah. But our goal is, is we basically, we're a church, we're a ministry that's gathers at nighttime for dinner mm-hmm. and we serve over 50,000 meals a year to our folks on the street. Nobody's like, you can come if you want to hear the word, that's fine. If you don't, nobody's throwing a Bible in your, over your head. And like, if you don't come in, you don't get a dinner. I came to Christ because my back was up against the wall and I knew that there was a place to go to mm. receive Jesus. And that's how we want the ministry to be. Well, Dave, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being so transparent and sharing your testimony. Well, and you. to all our listeners, this is an amazing ministry. Dave, That how can people donate to Street Life Ministries? So if you just go on our website, mm-hmm. uh, www.streetlifeministries.org, mm-hmm. and then just click the donation button and you can either pay through PayPal. You could do a monthly or one-time gift, or there's our our physical office addresses on there. You can write a check. We love PayPal, but you Mm. know, they charge a percentage. So if you want to write a check where we get a hundred percent of that, yes, then you get a tax letter that's sent out and all that stuff. So it's all because we're 501c3. So it's right. And I wanted people to be aware of this. You hear about different organizations. Is it legit to give to them and everything? And I can just assure all our listeners that it's wonderful. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you so much, Robin. God bless you. It's a radical life. Woo! Radical life.